Hi, I'm Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. Welcome to Newsfeed, my podcast about the intersection of tech, media, and politics, which is where all the action is these days. And I am pleased to be joined today by Brian Stelter, the media reporter. What are you? The media editor, you know, senior they something. They call me the senior media correspondent. Senior media correspondent, all the fancy words together. And host of Reliable Sources. Yep, and the host of Reliable That's Sources. That's what they say who is, among other things, really one of the hardest working people in this business, which I appreciate because I feel like I used, I used to be one of those people and that hmm. in reporting, basically your time is the only thing you've got. Like, that's the only asset you've got. And, <laughs> and, and I've always admired just how hard you work. I remember when you, I had you over to dinner a few weeks ago, I found you sitting in a taxi with the meter running outside my house, frantically typing on, on your... Banging away at my laptop, yeah. <laughs> yeah, So, which I fully identify with um, as a reporter. Does that mean I'm going to become a not-so-hard-working reporter like you? You eventually, yeah, but you become kind of overweight middle management. They call that editors? And you take credit for other people's work, mm-hmm. and you barely, you barely do anything. But I think I would like to go back to when you were, you know, before you were middle management. Um... Because I think, like, this to me is a legendary story, but I I actually think probably most of your many fans now don't know your humble roots and your beginnings as a high school television blogger. (laughs) I was was happy recently there was a a story written about my uh, eight-year-old self calling in snow totals to the local TV station and getting so giddy when when the news anchor would say, Brian in Damascus says there's a foot of snow on the ground. I always felt like I was getting away with something because no one knew I was eight years old. And and there was this there was this story written in the Washington Post about uh, my my career, and it was striking how many people hadn't known those stories that I've kept. You know, I guess I've kept a lot of that to myself, even though I thought everybody was in on it on my nerdy roots. But I wonder. So, but so you were you were how old when you launched TV Newser? I was 18 when I launched TV Newser. I was I was just starting college. I had been making websites in middle school and high school about Nintendo games and well before that Goosebumps books. You know, I was the kid that called in the snow totals to the station and set up a anchor desk in the basement using my mom's ironing board. I would turn that into the anchor desk and and do the fake newscasts. But but the blog allowed me to actually do it for real. You know, actually have an audience as so, opposed to just myself. And it makes total sense to me that you liked Nintendo and that you were making websites. But TV? Aren't you a little young for that? <laughs> I, I know you're not the biggest uh, TV, um, what we call it, advocate. No, I'm I'm neutral. I just think like a lot of people of our generation were obsessed with the internet, and you mm. and you were obsessed with and great at the I internet, but also both. really cared yeah. about TV and why. I, I was obsessed do you know what, with both. Like, what's... I think TV makes the world feel bigger when you're relatively small, when you're young, when you're when you're learning about the world. TV, at least at its best, uh, can make you feel like you're part of something. You know, for example. I just so happened to have our TV antenna pointed at Washington. So we were getting the Washington local stations, which are some really great local TV stations. Being an hour from Washington growing up, watching those stations, learning from those local news anchors, it definitely excited me about the medium of television and about you know politics in the nation's capital for sure. And uh, the blog was that combination of the web and TV. It was this obsession with at that point, cable news, right? Cable, which was, was it coming cable into newser? its form. It was cable newser first. It, yeah, it was TV? cable newser because I was anonymous and I needed a I needed a, um, a name. When did it first? When did you first realize? Because I remember with my first blog, this realization that oh, my subjects are reading me. Yeah. So this is early 2004, and about a month into the blog, Greta Van Susteren, uh, anchor at Fox at the time, linked to Cable Newser uh, on her own blog and said she'd been reading this site. 
And that was the light bulb moment. And had you been marketing it to them, or did they just have Google alerts on their names, or what was the uh, like? I, how do you? There's no Twitter. How do you even? Right. Connect? How do you, how do you send it? out a flag? I, I marketed it by emailing uh, bloggers like Jeff Jarvis, uh, trying to get links from his right. blog Buzz Machine, from yep. places like Instapundent, Glenn Reynolds, those kinds of sites. The old dark matter of of the internet was bloggers emailing each other. Emailing each other. Yeah, and, I would say, Brian, I just attacked you, but I linked you in this <laughs> in this post, and would you please? When you attack me back, please give me a good link. Precisely. Link back. And and that was how the snowball got rolling down the hill for me. Uh, I think people like Greta, I, I may have emailed them. I don't want to say I didn't, but uh, uh, I think that seeded the ground within what a was month your, or what two. What was your anonymous email account? It must have been Cable News or at Hotmail at that point. I'm not right, sure if I had right. Gmail yet, you know. The blog was a response to my desire to read a blog about cable news. I, I was uh, f- obsessed with cable news, with CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. If you think about that time after the invasion of Iraq, these cable news channels are increasingly becoming more and more popular and becoming more and more influential, meaning the local newscasters, the network newscasters, they were all following cable's lead. And I didn't think the, the cable newsers got enough respect or attention or news coverage, so I just did it myself. You were, you were also getting scoops, at some right. point fairly early on. Right. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm misremembering this, but I feel like you broke through in part because you had new information. I think that's right. Uh, there was a need for a bulletin board for the industry, uh, meaning a place everybody could kind of gather and talk and gossip and share information. And some of that would be scoops you know, well, handed out first, by the networks. What was your first big scoop? Do you remember? I can't remember the first big one. There were stories early on, though, that – um, were even just ratings-based. Like, just having the daily ratings was a big deal. I wouldn't call that a scoop, but until Cable News, there wasn't a place to go and see who won last night. Yeah. Even some of the producers in the networks didn't know, didn't have access to the ratings. So I was providing a, um, a sort of bulletin board experience for these newsrooms and, I guess, forcing the anchors like Greta Van Susteren to, to read, to tune in, because uh, that's where everybody else was getting their information. It, it is, in any industry, right, there's these outlets that, are, that, are, that have that... Um, critical mass. And there was that moment right when this kind of information that we now obviously you could get anywhere just wasn't widely available. Obvious things like ratings. Yeah. And and there were scoops partly because the networks would dole them out uh, and partly because of an anonymous tip box. I mean, the best thing I ever did was just put this tiny little tip box in the corner of the screen uh, that was anonymous. People could say anything. And a lot of it was spam and complaints and compliments. But enough of it was, hey, I think something's happening over at CNN. I think this is happening over at Fox. Just enough to lead me down the road. I wanted to talk a little bit about scoops, actually, because I think, like, you, I care a lot about scoops. You care a lot about scoops. I think a lot of, I don't know, in, in a moment of tons of hand-wringing about journalism, some of it is about a lack of context, about how, you know, I think, in a way, this is in some ways the premise of Vox, and I think Spencer Klein has always thought that, that scoops, like, privilege the new over context. Mm-hmm. Um, but you break, you, I mean, but one of the things, you break news every day in that, that email of yours. Um, I, I try to. And, I think and, the, the, the highest value I can add is just to put a little bit of new information into the world every day. And that's not to uh, uh, criticize the Voxes of the world. I would argue they do put new information into the world, especially new context. But if I can just put a little nugget, whether it's about Bill O'Reilly recently or about other stories in the past, uh, that's what is going to break through. It, what is it? Just a stunningly noisy landscape, you know? So. I mean, I had the I had the blog for four years. I went to the New York Times for for six or seven years, then to CNN. The, the one really, thing they all have in common is just trying to trying to have scoops sometimes. Yeah, it's the coin of the realm. It buys you a certain entrance if you, if you don't if you don't have new information. It's 
hard. You can't, it's hard to force people to read you. It, it's uh, on CNN. We call that breaking news with that red tab. You know, in the New York Times. You call a lot of things breaking news. <laughs> That's a separate conversation. Uh, in the New York Times, it's, it's, uh, we had you know, a lot of blogs in the late 2000s. It was the way to get a blog post up. Did you always want to work in TV? Did you always see your trajectory as being toward television? I genuinely did not. I felt that I had a fork in the road when I was in college. It was a fork in the road between television and print slash digital, uh, partly because I had to join the TV station or the school paper, but partly because uh, I looked at the careers, those two industries, and, and, and this is going to sound embarrassing, but I thought I didn't have the hair for TV. I thought I did not have that kind of anchorman look. If you think about the Brian Williams and the Tom Brokaws and the, back then the Peter Jennings and Dan Rathers of the world, they have a certain very... Uh, hairy appearance yeah, on television. It's really inspiring how the kind of aesthetics of male beauty have changed in those <laughs> uh, well, years and how like the, you're now this icon well, I'm not the expert on, I'm not yeah. the expert on that. But I thought to myself, I'm going to have even less hair in 10 years. And in 20 years, I don't know if those jobs will be what they were in 2004 or 2005. You know, we're, we're talking now in 2017. I mean, my goodness, I don't think any of us would have thought that uh, Lester Holt would have as many viewers today as he does today, uh, that Anderson Cooper uh, has as big an audience as he does every night. Uh, what I thought was happening was I thought television news was eroding uh, rather quickly. Uh, so with that in mind and also with my love for blogging and, and for print, you know, I went in a print direction. I went toward my school paper. I went toward the New York Times after graduation. Uh, I genuinely didn't see a path toward television. And I think, you know, the thing that I, and as somebody who's really a news junkie and cares a lot about scoops, followed you through the Times, you know, read your book for were the scoops, was the new information. You broke news all the time. And I really thought of you. And when you started at CNN as somebody who was a great reporter, worked his ass off, broke news all the time. And I think I was a little surprised to see you emerge over the last year as a kind of a voice trying to kind of assert a kind of moral clarity, turn to the, directly to the camera and talk about these sort of highfalutin values of journalism. I you mean, mean Trump's attacks on journalism? Were, were you, were you, where does that come from? I think it was probably this time last year I started doing essays on reliable sources. And it was uh, partly to take advantage of the medium, meaning on television uh, you can throw to the soundbite, uh, laugh at it or point out the mistake or point out the problem or point out the, the beauty of it. You know, you can be tossing to those elements. You can tell a story through the combination of those sound bites and then uh, responses. Uh, John Stewart and Don Oliver have kind of pioneered this in a different way in comedy, but there are a lot of ways to do it in news. So I was trying to do a little bit of that and uh, honestly trying to figure out how to describe to viewers what real news is and kind of real journalism as opposed to what is a lot of the, the news-like substances that are out there. And I'm not just talking about what we now call fake news or try to avoid calling fake news. Craig Silverman had not really uh, – he, he had started to write about this phenomenon uh, last spring, but the term fake news was not yet uh, in, the, in the culture. But th there was always there's always a sense that what Sean Hannity's doing on Fox, for example, it looks like news. He sits at a news anchor desk and he has newsy graphics, but we all know it's not news. And I think there, there I was trying to talk about that, observe how conspiracy theories, for example, were taking root on a show like Hannity's. Uh, again, it's not news, but it smells like news, and that's a problem. Yeah, there's a kind of form of news. I mean, I think Alex Jones also carries yeah, that. Yeah, Alex Jones, absolutely. So I was trying to tell that story, and the the essays are an effective way to tell that story. I also think you know Trump's attacks on the media uh, and some of his claims about the media, they require a persistent kind of fact-checking 
or beyond fact-checking or correction. But for, but for you personally, it feels to me like there are some reporters who for whole, their whole careers have had a kind of like moral tone to their work or sort of, I don't know, felt like they were crusading and you were never that at all. But and I don't it feels think like I'm a, crusading now. It feels like a bigger step for you into that than it would be for other reporters. I say that huh. as somebody who kind of comes from the same tradition you do. And I feel a level of discomfort doing that, although maybe I try it sometimes. I writing. think the moment is different right now. I think the time is unique right now. Last year, all of us were trying to grapple with this once-in-a-lifetime candidate. How do we express to the viewer that what he's saying may be clearly misleading, damaging to the public discourse? You know, we saw journalists in lots of different ways try to get through and communicate about that. I found that in these essays, that was a way for me to do it. Yeah, I do think the challenge to the forms of journalism by somebody who lies to your face, really, I mean, is, is this a huge challenge? I mean, we all, there's a tradition that you try to, you, you try to get access to people and the, the sort of deal in access journalism is that once you've got the access, they tell you the truth. And, and his not doing that, I do think, posed these big challenges. When, when he calls the New York Times or CNN or BuzzFeed fake, we, it's become sort of a, somehow accepted by a lot of people. But I think we've got to stop every time that happens and say, hold on. He's talking about a real journalism outfit. He's talking about a real newsroom. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm trying to remain aware, kind of, you know, when I went on vacation for a week, turned off Twitter, came back, his tweets really are shocking. Like, they're shocking in a way that sometimes we can get numb to it if we're on Twitter all day long seeing what the president's tweeting. It's important sometimes maybe to delete Twitter once in a while, come back to it with fresh eyes and recognize how unusual this still is. I also I think I see you as a fairly kind of sunny, optimistic person, and it feels to me like you're pretty freaked out right now. I don't think I'd say I'm freaked out. I would say that I'm paying a lot of attention to how people are consuming and reacting to these anti-media attacks. What I mean is, if you think about some of these words, some of these tweets, some of these um, campaign rallies back last year as as poison, as a form of poison that's entered into the bloodstream. What I'm really interested in now is how is that poison affecting the body politic? How is that poison affecting the consumers? Because it's not something any of us were seeing or covering five years ago, And for are you example. worried about the consequences of that, you know, beyond the kind of media conversation? I'm uh, – short answer, yes. Why, why beat around the bush? Yes. Uh, aren't we all concerned? Aren't you concerned about BuzzFeed's brand and identity and reputation when the president calls it garbage? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know – in some sense, like our brands are probably the least of our worries. But uh, why is that? I mean, I mean, perhaps professionally, but I, don't, I wasn't asking so much about your brand as about kind of what the consequences socially broadly are for that kind of division. Right. We increasingly see these alternative realities, and that's a topic I have a hard time trying to to wrestle with. You know, in a seven minute TV segment, because I mean, this is the we biggest have four thing hours ha- here, Brian. It's, well, <laughs> it's the biggest thing happening, right? Infowars being sort of an extreme example. Biggest thing happening in media is this separation off into two alternate universes. Uh, Charlie Warzel's doing great work. What does he call it? The upside down. Yeah, the upside down. Like it was Charlie's <laughs> term for the like a reference to Stranger Things. He's out. He's out at the Alex Jones trial today. In right Austin. now, yeah. yeah. Uh, I so I find that to be the one of the biggest stories right now that I I, I try to convey. I try to get through in coverage. Yeah, and no, I'm obsessed with it. And it's a hard. It's it's a complicated story to cover. This is that sort of tradition of not touching these things for fear of validating them, and yet ignoring them didn't work so well. Um, 
So I, I know you're not a spokesman for CNN. I don't plan to like spend this grilling you about. Well, CNN. you're CNN's biggest fan, I think, right? I'm. I, I think I'm perhaps miscast as a CNN critic. Jeff Zucker, <laughs> out of nowhere, took some swipes at us last year. We swiped back, as you know, one does. Um, but I do think there was sort of an interesting. There was a. I'm sure you saw video uh, critique of CNN going around last week that from Vox actually that snipped together a bunch of um, clips from CNN, ESPN. And argue that it's that the conflict-driven approach to politics helps spread misinformation, kind of leveling the playing field. You have a lot somebody who's lying and somebody who's telling the truth, and they yell at each other for a while. I think, I mean, I don't think that's actually particularly. I mean, that's the core form of a lot of cable news forever, rather than being specific to CNN, maybe. But I'm, I do wonder what you what you think of that. I think number one, CNN's a big place, and when you condense four or six minutes of it. Uh, uh, it can seem like a small place where that's all that happens. That's one what, one form exact, of CNN. That is exactly what reporters at Fox News tell you when you ask them. What do you mean? I, you, I asked George Will the other day about like, well, what do you think of Fox News? He's like, well, it's a big place. Hmm. In the mornings, I tell the truth. In the evenings, they lie. Uh, you know? <laughs> uh, that's well, a paraphrase. And I guess you could say the same thing about BuzzFeed, that it's a big place. And uh, people that, that laugh about cat videos from five years ago are missing the bigger picture, but, right, I, but we, I, we don't have a division that spreads misinformation about our journalism. Now that it's CNN, no, no, I'm not, that was, we were still talking about Fox, perhaps. <laughs> but I am curious about how you see that that critique of, of what big... I'm saying is parts of CNN, like the or just the cable news format of Trump supporters screaming at critic of Trump with a referee. I think the flaw I saw in the Vox piece was the implication was the Trump commentators lie and the non-Trump commentators tell the truth. And it's not that simple. No, I there are was... so many shades of gray there. And, and to suggest that the Trump supporters are just there to spread mis- misinformation, I mean, give me a break. No, I thought it was – that's true. And I also thought it was a very ideological piece of propaganda in its own way where a <laughs> liberal commentator who saw this had a chyron that said experienced political expert. Like, I that's, noticed that's that not, too. But I think what the Vox that's piece not really was getting thing. at – None of us are political I, experts. Vox is getting something important though, which is uh, when you're the host of, of a segment like that, when you're the anchor of a segment like that – uh, it, you gotta be you gotta be fully present and engaged, and and I've had times on my program on Sunday mornings where I felt that I succeeded stepping in when someone misspoke or, or spread uh, BS, and then there's times where I where I failed at that and looked back later. You Is know, there it, one that sticks out to you? <laughs> if you had a mulligan, there are. Uh, hmm. I mean, on the principle that we have all screwed stuff up. I could I could Google it and probably find it tonight, but I uh, well, I mean, here's a boring one. I mean, there are times when. Literally, uh, a guest will say something, and I didn't hear it because I, the producer's in my ear, or I'm thinking about my next question. I'll look back an hour later and say, I didn't even hear the guest say that. You right, know, and people, and, and I mean. then you see people on Twitter saying, "Stelter just let this this flagrant falsehood fly right by." And and I and I and they did. They're right, right? Because because I missed it, and that's what I mean. When when you're the host and you've got a conservative and a liberal going at it. You have to be so on your game, paying such close attention. Uh, that's why I've got a laptop in front of me in, on my program, and I can type into Google and check things. And I think some of the times I really enjoy those back and forth is when I can actually Google it in real time and check and then tell the viewer that was true or that wasn't true. Because then we're showing the viewer we're on their side. And ultimately, this is about showing the viewer we're working for you. We are not here just to be the referees of an argument. We are here to help you know what's going on. Uh, I think CNN does that, you, you know, uh, although we all fall short. And I've, I've had those times on my show where, you know, during the campaign, you wish you could do it over. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I do think you've see. I, I I wasn't actually listening to the last few words you said, and they may have been a total oh, you were lie because I was my I was points. I was preparing for my next. I question, was admitting to my regrets, and then you just stopped you know? dead and we had a little dead air. I was admitting um, I was confessing to my mistakes as a TV news host. You know, I went I went Whatever back and I said. read the transcripts of every show uh, that I hosted from you know like the day Clinton got on the race all the way to election day because I I wanted to know did, did I talk too much about Trump? Did we go too easy on him early on? Just at least you know in the hour that I was responsible for. And actually, my biggest regret wasn't about Trump. It was about Bernie Sanders. I, I didn't take Bernie seriously enough in the, the summer and the fall of 2015. Yeah. And that was an important kind of note in the back of my head. There's been so much soul searching about how Trump was covered. There hasn't been as much thought about how Clinton and Sanders were covered. Were you sat up all night reading these? Or? <laughs> no, I'm a, you know, I'm a, this is one of my nerdy qualities. At the end of every year, I already go through and pull all the transcripts because I make a list of all the guests. Uh, in order to remember, because I, you know, I want to be able to go back and remember who we had on the program so we can invite them back. In this case, that year I went through the 18 months because I really wanted to get a sense of the campaign coverage. You know, early on, I was proud of the guests we were talking to having talk, talking about Trump. People coming on saying, this is a TV show. We need to recognize he's a reality show star, a salesman. We've never seen anything like this before. Uh, it's not to say I didn't say some embarrassing things early on about how soon he was going to drop out of the race. I think we all said who, who versions us? of that. Yeah. Um, you, you said something earlier about, you know, when you're, you're thinking of, this is what, 15 years ago, basically, like of, of what you're going to do, or you, do you want to be an anchor when you grow up and you don't look the right way, but also maybe these jobs won't exist. And like there, it feel has Trump postponed the reckoning for television? Were we all wrong? And actually television will continue to thrive in its current form for a long time. Because it does feel to me that he breathed a kind of life into a set of legacy media led by the Evening News, actually, and cable TV, but also the New York Post, also the National Enquirer, really the media of the, the dominant media of the 1980s when he was, when his sensibilities were frozen in amber. And it feels like he's really energized them. I mean, he's tweeting about the Evening News. When's the last time anybody tweeted about the Evening News? And, and, and I do wonder if you think, as, as sort of an observer of the industry, if he's fundamentally changed the trajectory. No, but I think you're right that there's a, a sort of breath of life into not just television news, but into the news business. That's also true. As for sure. the country sort of recognizes we're in the middle of a battle over our collective identity, bigger than Trump, but Trump is part of it, and people join that battle or, or want to tune in or read about that battle. I mean, that's that's what I see as the New York Times subscription bounce and your traffic gains and CNN's ratings gains. All of that a part of something that's bigger than Trump, but Trump is a, obviously a, a piece of. The television reckoning, you know, I would say every new media joins all the old media. So radio didn't die either. Television doesn't die, right? That's the old parable. Um, we're visual creatures, and we're becoming more visual creatures, as Mark Zuckerberg talks about, as everybody talks about, that everyone wants to move from text to video to some degree. As that continues to happen... I don't know how we're going to be able to define television versus digital video. Uh, that blurriness is going to keep happening, and, and CNN and BuzzFeed are going to benefit oh, from that. Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I sometimes think we don't um, – I'm, I'm sure you think about this, Ben, but, and I'm sure your colleagues do, but have, have we all sort of missed how profoundly the smartphone changed this, you know, this country and this society? It's been 10 years, right, since the iPhone arrived, and uh, I find myself going back to that more and more, uh, the consequences of this election, for example. What was different between 2008 and 2016? Is it that everybody had a smartphone? 
Right, uh, if I the, if I could take a month off, that's what I would go study. <laughs> and right, and I mean, right, this world, this society in which the dear leader can speak to you directly in a video out of this device that's strapped to you at all times, and that everybody else can be fighting with everybody yeah. else in real time on yeah. the most intimate of devices. Yeah, I, I think also, I mean, just to you know, punditize, like there's just something about the pace of technology of that change. Like this was a real a really dramatic change in everybody's life that was yes. part of what his, was his, kind of the destabilizing forces that led into the this election. This was a blink. In the blink of an eye, yeah. the whole country was given, the whole world was given this incredible technological tool. I don't think we were given the tools to use it necessarily. And, and, and what I mean by that is I fall victim to BS stories just like everybody else. Uh, retweet without reading. I retweet without reading. Uh, I forget to use my phone to actually reach out to my loved ones. You know, like I've got this amazing device and I'm not always sure I do the right the right things with it. And uh, I don't know. I find myself going back to that more and more. Now, on the other hand, uh, television and what the future of television is, is fully wrapped up in that smartphone. Now that I actually prefer to watch a sitcom on my phone versus the TV, um, that logic about how you'll go find the best possible screen has gone out the window. People will use the closest, most intimate screen instead. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're like also like just fully a creature of social media. You lost a bunch of weight on Twitter a few years ago. You're an inst- you're all over Instagram with 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 your wife Jamie, who uh, and you know I learned about that you guys are expecting a kid on there. <laughs> yes. Um, and I guess I wonder, what do you like keep for yourself? Is there a line? Ooh. And I'm supposed to tell you what I keep. Is there a kind of thing? Is there? Do you have a? Do you think about that? I do with regards to the baby to be right, the baby that's on the way. Uh, Jamie and I talk about what we're not going to post and what we're not going to share. When it comes to myself, yes, I mean, I, I guess you, you know, I'm trying to think of an example of what I don't share. Uh, I've been going home every night and playing Sim City on my laptop, totally retro. I grew up loving the Sim City games. I recently found on the App Store that uh, that you can download the old ones. I love it. I, I look like a 15-year-old staying up way too late playing SimCity. You know, I guess I don't share that on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram because I feel increasingly I'm sharing my professional life and I'm it's sharing my stories about, you know. Right. And, but you uh, also are sharing, you know, like pictures <laughs> of yourself and Jamie and like your whole relationship, I feel like, has played out before our eyes. And well, that's way. definitely true. I mean, meet, meet, meeting her on Twitter uh, and, and now she's taught me Instagram stories. It's, it's interesting how which partner arrives first at which new social networks, <laughs> yeah. of course. Th- there are definitely days where I find... Just ignoring social media also helps, and yep. I guess that's a function of getting older. But And I do wonder, though, in terms of, you know, I, I have kids and you're just about to have a kid, and I do think that one of the ways that the kind of reporter I think we both have been at times works is that you are more responsive to your sources than anybody else. You're more available. If somebody sends you a tip, you respond in three minutes, hey, I don't want this, or yes, I'm going to use it, and it'll be up at this point. And I think, like... There's something in that, for me at least, it was always just like incredibly useful. And sources really appreciate it if you can get back to them in three minutes and say, hey, I don't want this because then they can go shop it to somebody else. Right. And and being totally responsive all the time is actually yes. a huge competitive advantage. You know, we've got like hungry young Stephen Pearlberg, great, great media reporter you met downstairs. Yes. You know, I mean, are you afraid that that there's a something, there's a kind of reporting that requires this like total 24-7 sitting in the taxi online all the time commitment that's hard to do when you have a life. Am I afraid? That, that you lose that edge as a reporter. Yes. 
Do you plan to do become have, a different kind of reporter? <laughs> I mean, how are you? Avoid do you have a plan for it? Um, no, I, I mean, I'm sitting near. I feel like I'm in a confessional booth. So yes, I, I am afraid uh, a bit of what what that change in time is going to mean. I was at the, um, uh, depending on when people are listening, uh, you know, it's the middle of April. We just went to another doctor's appointment, uh, the baby doc. And while my wife is out, you know, getting herself weighed on the scale, a uh, PR person texts and uh, says, got a scoop for you. And I pick up the phone and I called that person and I heard the scoop. Uh, and I said, and just so you're comfortable, I said, I'd love to write that, but I'm at the baby doctor. Uh, please give it to somebody else. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a hard thing to say. And it came out. The story came out in another outlet when I was in the cab on the way back to work. But I'm not going to remember that a month from now. And I'm definitely not going to remember it a year from now. Oh, for sure. But the source might. The source might. But, you know, <laughs> the source appreciated that I actually wanted to pay attention to my yeah. life. Yeah, I mean, there, sure. There's an element to that as well that I think can't, can't be missed. Um, that all these folks in this business are human and everybody's trying to juggle. I think can appreciate that kind of transparency about juggling. Uh, so I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. You know, I'm, I'm afraid, but I'm more curious. What I love about this moment a few weeks before our first child is born is wondering how is it going to change our lives and not having any idea, wondering how it's going to change me, wondering how it's going to change my emotions, the way I view the world, the way I view uh, the administration, the way I view the media. The, you know what I can't wait to learn about? I can't wait to learn about children's media. Kids TV. Wasteland. Oh, I don't think so. Don't We've been going to see <laughs> no, actually, kids' movies. They're yes. fantastic. The kids' movies are fantastic. YouTube is full of fascinating things. It's as if you I'm standing find. in a mansion, and I've only been inside two of the rooms in the, in the mansion, and I'm about to get to see the entire building, and I have no idea what's in the rest of that building. I, I don't know. I wonder if there's any other element of life that is like this where – you know it's all about to change. You know you're about to experience something new. You know you're about to change your view of the world, but you don't know in what ways. We don't know the gender, by the way. You know, if, if you give me the scoop. Um, <laughs> the, uh... Reporters always say to me, how can, how can you not want to know? Don't you want to know? You want to know everything. You're a journalist. But there's something blissful about not knowing. I feel like maybe you're just going to have to wind up in sort of parenting media. Like you have a kind of all-consuming obsessiveness what, to you. What, is that, that, what does that mean? That I don't know. That maybe in two years your show on CNN is going to be about raising a two-year-old. <laughs> well, thank you for thanks for coming on. This was fun. Uh, thanks for having me on while I still have time uh, to leave the office when yeah. I don't have a crying baby. Newsfeed is produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, and Meredith Kennedy. 